Good afternoon, South by Southwest Festival friends. Hello. Welcome to the 90-Minute Film School 2023.、Um, I wanted to welcome you all.、Uh, my name is Anna Fetter, and I run the Bright Light Cinema series at Emerson College in Boston. Any Emerson folks? Woo! <laughs> yes. We had a good night at the Oscars last night. Um, uh, I've been speaking here since 2017,、uh, and the conference folks have been inviting me back to produce this session since 2019.、Uh, it's my honor to share this stage with the women behind me. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> I hope you'll be inspired to check out their work after the session,、um, if you're not already familiar.、Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves, starting with Misha Jakubczyk.、Uh, we'll move from one talk onto the next, and we'll have some time for a discussion afterwards. So, welcome, Misha. Awesome, thank you. Cool. Is my mic working okay? Is it on? Yeah. Is it? May bring it closer. Okay. How's that? Yeah. You guys hear me? Okay. Cool. Hey, you guys. I'm so happy to be here, and thank you. Oh, it's not working. Okay, thanks. See, I don't work in the sound department. Okay. I can I can project too. No, not good. Ah.、Oh. Okay, how's that? I'll just kind of talk into my chin. <laughs> okay, you guys. I'm going to start over again. Rewind. Um, first of all, I just want to thank Anna so much for putting together this panel and for having us.、Um, my name is Misha Jakubczyk, and I also want to thank South by Southwest. I don't know if you guys have been to other festivals, but this one is the shit. It is <laughs> so good. Everybody here is so nice. There is none of the usual kind of like bullshit pretension. I just love it.、Um, So I am a filmmaker, and I'm going to be talking about reincarnations of story across multimedia. What the fuck does that mean, right? So what it means is I got the opportunity to produce a story,、um, and from that, it's called. It was、uh, the features "Potato Dreams of America," and from that,、uh, Wes Hurley, who is the director, and I were able to make. A ten-minute、uh, short doc called "Little Potato," a five-minute、uh, VR immersive cinematic piece called "Potato Dreams," and then eventually,、um, "Potato Dreams of America," the feature narrative.、Um, so, before I get too much further, I just want to give you guys a super quick snapshot of my story of origin.、Um, I. Before I ever got into film, I grew up in Montana on a goat farm in a log cabin, and so working in film has not been my sort of natural trajectory.、Uh, my parents were special ed teachers, and、um, there was no chance of nepotism as far as getting into the industry. <laughs> Trust me, I would have walked in that door if I could have,、um, but it wasn't. It wasn't really even an option. So I just want to start off by welcoming everybody. Um, genuinely, and letting you know that you belong here.、Um, nobody ever told me that when I tried to get into film.、Um, it was interesting. I just got the opportunity to hear Tilda Swinton down the hall with her keynote, 
And it was so metaphoric because I got there a little late and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get in. I went in the one entry and the guy there was very polite, but said, no entry here. You can't get in. (laughs) He's like, okay, but go around this other way and you can get in. So I, I went around the other way and I was able to get in, sneak in. And there were like a couple of seats and I sat there and was like, I got in. Like, how did I get here? Just sort of amazed at being able to hear Tilda Swinton speak with, you know, so beautifully of her story. And um, so I'm just glad that everybody got a seat. And um, I, so I, okay, I don't know how to go back. Um, I grew up on a goat farm in Montana. I got into film um, I guess in like 2005 and the first time I've always loved cinema and the first time, um, that I, the reason why I was drawn to cinema is because it shares other worlds and growing up on a goat farm in Montana, the VCR and the movies that we used to rent were the only way that I could imagine worlds beyond where I was living. Um, so I came in and real quick snapshot, I came up through an un unpaid intern to be a PA, 80 department, and then I was a production manager and line producer, and I was working on a series of films. Um, They talk about being hungry, and I was starving, and (laughs) literally, and I was working on a series of films, and I would work with anybody on anything, and uh, because I wanted to work on film, and I, we are the only industry that lobbies for a 12-hour work day. Um, that I know of. And so it is, you know, it's all consuming. And I was working, I was able, I was fortunate enough to work, but I was working on a whole slew of films, one after another as a line producer. And I realized one day that I didn't know what film I was working on because the last three films that I had worked on had a sexy woman with red lipstick, a car scene, a, a car chase, um, some gunfire and a briefcase. <laughs> it's like, okay, what the fuck, you know, script is this? And I, I had a moment where I was like, why am I here? What am I doing? So I pulled back and I was able to produce uh, Megan Griffith's first, well, it's her second feature called The Off Hours. And we were lucky enough to get into Sundance. So fast forward, um, it was 2015, 2016. Um, 2016, Trump had just been elected. Um, I was at a place where I was pretty cynical. I was cynical about America. I was cynical about film at that point, which is easy to do if you work in the wrong areas. And um, I came across, I, a friend of mine sent me this script called Potato Dreams of America. And I loved it. I read it and it was funny and it was based on a true story. And the true story was my good friend Wes Hurley's autobiographical story of growing up in Russia gay. And his mother was a doctor who worked in a prison. And he, in in Russia, um, the word for a gay person is called a pedic. And it's, it's used interchangeably with pedophile or gay person. And his mother ended up becoming a mail-order bride to get him out of Russia so that he didn't have to join the Russian army. And uh, they were able to get out, and they moved to Seattle. And 
The story continues from there. It's one of those stories that's based on real life, real events, but at every twist and turn, it it surprises you. And um, it really is a story that, having heard it, um, if someone were pitching it, you would be like, eh, it's a little far-fetched. Let's, let's pull it back a little bit so it's a little bit more, you know, believable. But it was, it was what actually happened. Wes had written an article. So the first incarnation was an article that he had written about being growing up gay in Russia. Um, and it was published in the uh, Huffington Post in 2000. I think it was 2015, 2016. And so I met with him immediately loved him, fell in love with the story. Um, You know, as filmmakers, I think it is really important to pick out, you know, life is so short and it takes so much energy and time and resources to make films. Before you start, before I start a project, I really think it's worth taking a minute saying, does this story need to be told? Has this story been told before? Um, And who should tell this story? And I feel like if if filmmakers and content creators took that minute, um, you know, there'd be a lot less Marvel <laughs> films, for one, which is totally, there's nothing wrong with Marvel. But, you know, there, there, there would be a lot less films um, that are s- sort of maybe not the way that they're intended for the power of filmmaking. Um, so... Uh, we had no money, <laughs> as most of us start off. And um, he, uh, is it really, have I talked? How long have I talked? Have I talked 15 minutes? Um, okay, I'm going to fast forward. So we got a grant for $4,000. With that, we made a short doc, and we made the short VR piece. We are scrappy. If you give, you know, you drop a handful of change on Wes and I's desk. Like, we're like, oh, well, what can we do? So we did that. Both of those pieces were made with the um, with the hope of then leveraging it to make a feature. Um, the feature. I'm sorry, I want to consider. Okay, yeah. So I'm going to keep going. We got the grant. We made the short doc. It did really well. We had to babysit it. Because it did so well, um, it was qualifying for the Oscars. So we put the narrative aside so that we could kind of babysit it and give it its best opportunity. It premiered here in 2017. And then we made the short doc. And there were parts of the story that were not included. Wes got the Creative Capital Grant, which leveraged us enough to be able to afford part of Potato Dreams of America. And we were able to build the support and love to make the feature. I am so sorry that I took so long. I have a meandering way, but I'm so glad that you guys are all here. The stories that we tell are really important, and I can't wait to hear everybody else on the panel. It's okay. Okay, okay. Everyone can you hear me? Yeah. All right, awesome. Uh, hi, my name is Mari Walker, and tonight or today I'll be uh, talking about sharing equity through independent film. Um, this photo was taken March 4th, 2020. Uh, it was right after I finished my first feature, and I was so excited, and I was like, 
We are going to get out there. This is going to be the greatest year of all time. And uh, I, I thought it was going to be the greatest year for everybody on the planet. And it turned out that I was phenomenally wrong. Um, COVID obviously has had a huge effect on our industry, and it can add up to 20% of a film's budget. And right now, we have a lack of cheap, cheap and easy accessible pandemic insurance. So if your film is filming, and then unfortunately, your lead ends up getting COVID, then there could be a lot of problems. Thank God we were able to finish our film before uh, COVID really hit uh, America. But um, and of course, COVID has also led to a huge issue of recession. Uh, there's an international recession that everybody's afraid of. So it's really hard to be able to find um, financing these days. And of course, there's a huge financial burnout that everybody's facing, including our friends and family and folks that we might normally rely on to be able to get our financing for. And then, of course, there's streaming, which is really great, but it's only great if you're able to get your film acquired. It's very rare that there is a, uh, a streaming company that's willing to finance a first-time filmmaker. Um, unfortunately, there's no Roger Corman out there in the world right now that would allow us to be able to do uh, that sort of thing. And then, of course, there's theater closures, which have been absolutely devastating. Even in Los Angeles, RIP Landmark Pico, any of, any of you that live in Los Angeles know what I'm talking about. Um, and it's unfortunately really stifled a lot of uh, movement forward for these new, this next generation of filmmaking. And of course, uh, that leads us to crowdfunding. And patrons have always been integral to art ever since its inception. Um, but it really hit uh, independent film in 1997 when um, the writer-director Mark Tapio Kynes designed a website for his then-unfinished first feature film, Foreign Correspondence. And by early 1999, he had raised more than $125,000 from around 25 fans, uh, giving him funds to be able to complete the film. And then, of course, as things started to evolve, we had things like Artishare in 2001, which was our first online crowdfunding uh, site. And then, of course, uh, it's moved on to things like uh, Kickstarter and Indiegogo and Seed and Spark, which are all really great resources to be able to do crowdfunding. But what I'd like to talk to the, about today is crowdfunding versus crowd equity. Uh, one of the things that's really great about crowdfunding is, uh, <clears throat> according to the Cambridge Judge Business School in 2015, over $34 billion was raised through crowdfunding, which is pretty great. Uh, there's a greater public understanding of fundraising through these platforms, particularly for any of us that are filmmakers out in the audience. I'm sure you've either donated or have asked for donations for uh, Seed and Spark or any of the like. Um, it's easier to get public funding through smaller donations. It's easier to ask your friends and family for $5, $25 versus, say, $50,000, which is a lot of money. Um, it's, uh, it's ideal for short films and documentaries, and then in the end, you have full ownership of the film, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, one of the negatives is overexposure leading to burnout. Um, film statistician Stephen Follows believes 53% of projects on Kickstarter seeking under $1,000 succeed, compared to just 11.6 of those seeking over $50,000. Um, you know, everybody, everybody's donated, everybody's invested. Um, the cost of rewards is a huge issue. Uh, I had the unfortunate uh, experience of realizing how much it costs to ship posters and actually get them printed out uh, after you've already promised it. Um, and of course, there's a lack of larger investors, and there's also a huge volume of projects that you're sort of facing against. But with crowd equity, um, which was uh, developed through the 2012 Jobs Act, thank you, Obama, um, there's a greater pool of investors. There's a minimum of $100 per share 
It's ideal for narrative features and production companies and has a greater sense of involvement for the investors. And crowd equity is fresher, so not as many film or TV projects have really moved through these platforms before, so there's definitely more opportunity to be able to get additional larger investments. Uh, unfortunately, the negatives are that there is a narrower investor list. Um, it's really hard to get smaller investors interested. Uh, one of the things that we have to do through WeFunder is uh, ask for people's financial information, their social security number, and I can tell you a lot of folks, uh, friend, friends and family of mine, were very, very skeptical about giving that information out publicly uh, to another company. But, uh, you know, there, there are the positives and negatives, of course, and uh, there's longer setup and, and more paperwork. Uh, why we decided to use WeFunder for my future? I was a first-time filmmaker. I was very, uh, I didn't have a very large social media presence. I had done a series of shorts, but they hadn't gotten into things like Sundance or South by Southwest, which allowed me for the outlet to be able to promote in my next project. I also felt it was easier to ask people to invest not only in the project, but also in me with my job to be able to make them money. Um, sometimes it's easier to ask for than a donation because then you're, you know, actually working in a business. Um, so how we got started, um, so WeFunder operates similar to other crowdfunding sites. Of course, you start your application for about a week. You have to wait until you receive a fundraising estimate from the company. And then you fill out information for the SEC. You build out your profile as you normally do, and then of course you launch it. The fundraise period for uh, WeFunder is a bit longer. It's between one to six months, um, which is really great to be able to sort of accrue that and give the time that you need to be able to speak to your investors and really get them like emotionally engaged within the project. Um, but it also, uh, as I'll speak to a little bit later, it's extremely painful to wait six months to be able to see if you have enough money <laughs> to make your film. Uh, one of the things I would also note is that foreign investing is really difficult. Um, because you also have to deal not only with the tax codes here in the States, but you also have to deal with the tax codes of the folks who are living in whatever country they're living in. Uh, one of the other things that you have to consider when you're doing something like crowd equity is you have to hire a CPA. There's lots of upfront costs, but also WeFunder does lion's share of paperwork at the beginning, which is really nice. But unfortunately, they don't do the paperwork necessarily in the back end, and you can't just write uh, your investors a check you have to file K-1s for all of your investors and make sure all of your paperwork and filings in order because, you know, nobody wants a tax man after them. Um, this is Puya Maseni, who is one of our co-leads for the film. I'm just putting this in because I just think that she's just absolute best. And I just want to make sure everybody sees her face. <laughs> um, so their standard investment periods sort of follow the same thing as, uh, as crowdfunding. Um, I can only speak from my private experience. Uh, don't do December. Don't do it. It was bad. It was really terrifying because everybody's buying presents and all that for holidays. Everybody's trying to save some money. Uh, I would not recommend it. It was really painful. But, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing sort of follows for Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and, of course, uh, March, May, and July are the best months. And Monday and Tuesday are the best times not only to launch but also to post. Um, investment periods uh, for hours are sort of the same thing. What I tend to generally do is whenever I'm launching or even doing a post, I tend to do it at like 9 o'clock in the morning. So it hits 12 on the East Coast time, and then it can sort of build the audience on the West Coast sort of throughout. Um, the, the person who built these uh, charts had suggested uh, the best time to launch is Tuesday at 8 a.m. in May, um, which I agree with. And there's Lin Chen, our other co-lead. If any of you directors are out here and you need some really amazing actors, you hire these two ladies 
and they will rock your world. They are absolutely phenomenal. Had to do the pitch. Uh, <laughs> stressors, that's me in the desert, really terrified. Uh, standard <laughs> fundraising cycles, sort of similar to uh, crowdfunding. You get a lot at the beginning, a lot at the end, and then you walk through the desert to hopefully get to the other oasis. Uh, but it could be a little terrifying, as always. And uh, finding angel investors, of course, the same thing. It's best to find somebody at the beginning and the end to be able to get you to the right place and algorithmically for your film to rise up through the charts on these various websites. Uh, we filmed with tranches. Tranches are really helpful because you can bring outside investment that doesn't have to fall under the WeFunder rules. WeFunder takes 7.5% of whatever is passed through the platform itself, but any outside investment actually doesn't have to incur that additional fee. Um, yeah, but you have to notify your investors that you've already accrued and let them know that this new tranche of funds does not affect the shares they've already purchased. For us, we set the share at $100, so we were able to find the investors for the rest of the production, basically, and then we were able to film the film while we were still uh, asking people to invest in it. Uh, another thing I wouldn't recommend for anybody, because it's really, really <laughs> stressful to be making a movie, being like, oh, gosh, I sure hope I get that money by the end of the project. And then we were like, oh, this is so great. We're going to be... We're going to finish the movie. We're going to be able to relax. And then, of course, COVID happened. And then every three months, there was a new crisis in America. And it was really stressful. It was a stressful time, y'all. Um, and then we made it. You know, filming with investors is really great. Um, one of the things that's really wonderful is having the opportunity to work with more in-depth with your investors. You know, usually on something like a, a Kickstarter or a Seed and Spark, maybe you have people come on to one day on set and visit um, we actually had several of our investors in pre-production and through production uh, that were on set. Uh, in the center photo there is a photo of me watching the monitor with my DP, Jordan Pro on the left, and my dad on the right, looking very confused as to what we were filming. But I assured him that we were making a good movie. Um, and of course, then, of course, we had the flexibility of financing through that period. And of course, finishing with COVID was quite the experience, but it also allowed us to really spend a lot of time talking with our investors sort of throughout the process and making sure that they felt comfortable with the film, um, but also felt that they were involved. Um, and then we got it out into the world and we premiered at South by Southwest in 2021 on the virtual version. I don't know if you all went to the virtual version, but if you did, thank you so much. Uh, it was absolutely terrifying. And... Uh, but we're just so happy we did it. But the most important thing to do and the thing to consider as you're figuring out uh, the best way to finance your film is you just have to learn to believe in it with all of your heart. Any, anybody that's out there that's like looking to fundraise, I just, you just have to speak from the heart, especially if you're uh, doing crowd equity and really make sure that the audience and the folks that are supporting you know how much that you care about them and how much they're uh, they're necessary and important for this process, and uh, and it, you know, in the end, it, you can make a really great movie and be really relieved. And there's Puyo and Lin again. Everybody, Puyo Maseni and Lin Chen, please hire them. Um, and then I would just say at the end, uh, you know, whatever works best, whatever works best for your film. Crowd equity is really amazing, but so is crowdfunding. And finding like the best platform for your film, the best way to, ex to get exposure, particularly if you have, uh, our film was uh, queer and also Asian American. And that's an extremely hard thing to finance these days, as any of you I'm sure have seen. Um, so it was, it was really great to just find the right platform as we did for WeFunder uh, to be able to get the financing that we need. And with that, I think I'm gonna pass it over to Anna. Thank you everyone so much.
Thank you. Okay. I'm going to set a stopwatch. All right. Hello, everyone. Hello again. Uh, thanks for making time for this session. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that we have uh, an ASL interpreter folks here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I really... I really appreciate uh, South by Southwest's commitment to accessibility, um, and I apologize that there are not captions, but there was, they would be conflicting with the, uh, the image on screen, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so I just want to get a bit more information on my audience. So how many of you identify as filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers? Excellent. Thank You're in the right you session. All, yeah. um, any distributors or exhibitors in the room, just out of curiosity? Oh, done. <laughs> all right. I'm here. I'm an exhibitor. Um, and uh, how many you identify as activists? Raise those hands proud. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, uh, that's and, and and just you know how you identify how I define uh, an activist is just someone who takes action related to their values. Okay, thanks. It's a good way to start. So um, allow me to introduce myself again uh, now that I have my speaker hat on. Uh, I've always seen myself first and foremost as an activist. I am a queer Jew called to Tikkun Olam, um, which literally means, uh, translates to repairing the world. Um, and I've been an exhibitor for over half my life with various film festivals and the past 11 years running a free public and co- film and conversation series at Emerson College in Boston. Uh, I studied filmmaking for uh, 20 plus years ago, but I've only been making films in the last few years. Uh, my second documentary, Never Again Paranadi, is on the festival circuit. Uh, it has closed captions and descriptive audio available, though to my knowledge it has not screened publicly with either. Um, I've learned that few festivals are set up to screen films with accessibility features that are sort of separate uh, from the film. So what do I mean when I say access work? Uh, Wikipedia, believe it or not, has a useful definition that captures both the practical and the philosophical. Accessibility can be viewed as the ability to access and benefit from some system or entity. Uh, The concept focuses on enabling access for people with disabilities or enabling access through the use of assistive technology. However, research and development in accessibility brings benefits to everyone. Um, I think about that benefit in a few ways. For example, captions are usually thought of as for deaf and hard of hearing audiences. However, captions can create access uh, for um, uh, audience members with sensory processing issues and uh, hearing individuals who are learning English. Uh, I also know that my cinema is a richer community when more folks can attend and contribute to the conversation. Uh, Right now, I'm working to provide a very basic level of accessibility. Uh, My live introduction is typed out on the screen. All the film trailers have open captions, meaning they appear on the screen for everybody. Um, uh, The feature film has either open or closed caption, uh, depending upon what's available. Uh, Whenever possible, the the feature films also have uh, descriptive audio, uh, meaning there's an audio track that describes what's happening visually on screen. Um, And uh, I also hire a live cart provider um, to caption the discussion after the film. It's a challenge that would be made significantly easier if more filmmakers, festivals, and distributors join me in seeing access as inseparable from the work of connecting a story to an audience. So the current landscape. Um, While things are definitely improving since I started uh, down the path of being an exhibitor 25 years ago, um, I think we're sort of in this, still in this compliance model, meaning 
most of what I'm seeing is in response to what the ADA requires, the American uh, with Disabilities Act. Um, and this is really sort of the bare minimum that an exhibitor can do to avoid financial penalty. Um, I'm not sure how enforceable much of this is, as the guidelines have lots of caveats. Um, and it's funny, I just looked this up for the talk and didn't realize uh, all of these caveats. I'm going to read it to you, a quote now. Um, they require cinemas to, quote, provide closed movie captioning and audio description when showing a digital movie, so not film, distributed with such features... Uh, unless doing so would result in an undue burden or fundamental alteration. So you can see there are all sorts of ways that folks can get out of this. Um, for most independent filmmakers, any access features become the work of someone down the distribution chain. Um, so someone, someone else will handle it. Um, and that's like a really, it's a missed opportunity. That means that someone else is going to decide how your art is presented to an audience. Um, for independent distributors, like the ones that I work with, A24, which doesn't seem so indie right now, <laughs> Kino, um, Neon, um, just getting a working caption file is a hurdle. Uh, often there's confusion as to what captioning is. So subtitles, for instance, are not captions. They only encompass the dialogue, and they miss the whole tapestry of sound design that you and your team have worked so hard to craft. Um, because most cinemas are only required to show if the distributor makes them available, um, it often becomes the work of streaming platforms and television outlets who require captions. Um, and if they do have them, more often than not, there's been little to no quality control. Um, it's really painful sitting in my cinema and watching the open captions along with my audience and seeing all the errors that fundamentally alter someone's understanding of the film. And you'd be surprised how often that caption text overlaps with other text on the screen, making both unreadable. So you have a documentary, you've got lower thirds, suddenly you can't read any of that text. Um, so for anyone needing captioning, they cannot rely on independent films to cater to their needs in a cinema setting. So uh, when I started on this road in 2020, I had been inspired by a panel I saw at the Art House Convergence, which is a conference where people, or was, RIP, um, for people that own and manage art house cinemas and festivals. It happened in Utah before Sundance. Um, and uh, I came away with a few ideas. One, you don't need to be an expert. There are resources. I'll share a few at the end. Two, don't wait for permission or for some kind of requirement. You can start educating yourself today. Um, three, access is a continuum. We can always be striving for greater access. Start with what's manageable. I call captions now the gateway drug. Start with captions because you're like, oh, there are all these services. You know, there, that, it's, it's, a, it's a good way to start. But once you start, you're not going to want to stop. Um, and then, uh, so start with what's manageable and then keep building. Uh, four, access can be a creative challenge. Um, how can you tell your story in new ways and reach a wider, wider audience? And then five, access requires us all to push where we're able, have privilege, have power, we won't always be successful, and that's okay. Be upfront about learning and ask for feedback and keep improving. So this has started with a conversation with my audience for my film series, and it's a conversation we keep having. People keep coming to me and saying, oh, this works, this doesn't work. And we're constantly trying to figure out how to improve. So a little more on this idea of a creative opportunity. I wanted to share this quote from Alison O'Daniel, a visual artist who's hard of hearing and whose first feature, The Tube of Thieves, premiered at Sundance in January. Uh, Anna Rachel Rich from Rev.com, a company that offers captioning, asked, your approach to captioning is creative and experimental, at times stretching on-screen text, 
flipping it upside down, requesting a rhetorical sensitivity from the viewers. How much detail or poeticism should be instilled into a caption? What does the interplay between access and aesthetics look like for you? And she said, there can be a misunderstanding sometimes when terms like creative captioning get used, uh, that what we're wanting is some poetry that really moves far away. I don't think that's it. It's what I think it's actually a missed opportunity for a space where you can really add a level of detail and challenge yourself to be succinct and truly descriptive. Uh, I want... Um, I don't want to be distracted by the captions. I want them to function, but also open up a space for the depth of sound. And um, I want to show you a trail. Uh, I think it's a, it's not official trail. It's a, it's a clip for the Tuba Thieves, just so you can get a sense of what I'm talking about. Um, sort of how captions can be part of the tapestry of your film. Um, I'm going to set it up with a quote from a review by Susanna Gruder from IndieWire. Uh, first-time filmmaker and seasoned visual artist Allison O'Daniel, who's hard of hearing, offers captions that are uh, tactile, existing in a place beyond pure sound. In doing this, she deprioritizes hearing audiences, asking them to tune into her work in novel and often confounding ways. At the same time, she centers her film around various iterations of nonverbal communication and the generative experiment of attempting to describe sounds the way that deaf or hard of hearing people might conceive of them. Okay, so this is going to... Okay. Oh, I apologize. I didn't know that some of you might have a hard time seeing this, the text sort of showing up as things happen, as the tapestry of sound happens, but I just want to sort of point it out. And you can find this online, um, and I'll put it on the resource list at the end to find this, this clip online and look at it a little closer. And this text now is just the filmmaker talking to the audience. <laughs> okay, so uh, filmmakers, open caption your work. Um, don't let someone else down the chain, far removed from you being control of how your film is presented to an audience. For exhibitors, I know there's none in the room, <laughs> pass this information along to folks you know. Uh, push filmmakers and distributors. The more unifi unified a front demanding these features, the more standard they'll become. For distributors, educate yourself on these features, like know the difference between subtitles and captions. They're not the same. And work with filmmakers to ensure that they have high-quality accessibility features included in their deliverables that are tested like a, by a human, uh, like all other deliverables. And then for audience members, we're all audience members. If your local festival or cinema doesn't have captions, tell them you want to see captions for every film. It is particularly important for non-disabled folks to show up and be allies. I just want to share a few resources with you, and this will be there'll be a QR code at the end. Um, with, that will take you to a Google Doc where you can find all these. Um, but uh, Respectability, it's a diverse disability-led nonprofit that works to create systemic change in how society views and values people with disabilities. Forward Doc seeks to increase, increase visibility of support for and direct access to opportunities, networks, and employment for deaf, disabled, and neurodiverse filmmakers. And then the Film Event uh, Accessibility Scorecard, was developed to capture attendee experiences at film events, particularly through an accessibility lens. Um, and then on Alison O'Daniel's website, um, there's some notes on what she thinks makes for compelling captions. And then here's my info. Um, all my sources and resources, um, and all this information, too, will be on that shared Google Doc for this session. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you all here at South by Southwest and beyond.
And now, Eileen. Thank you, thank you. That sounds pretty good. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, South By. Thank you all for being here. You could be at any other panel, but you're choosing to be with us here, so I really appreciate it. This translates to, you talk loud. When I was younger, my mother would always say this to me. What annoyed me then didn't annoy me so much as I got older. My Haitian mother saying over and over and over again. But I learned to lean confidently into this. Yeah, I talked really loud. But I realized that this was not a curse. It was a gift. I just needed to find something worth speaking loud about. My passion. My name is Eileen Baptistin Level, and I am the founder of Palefo Cinema. When I was five years old, I had my first cinematic experience, and I cannot tell you what I saw on the big screen. No, because I was too concerned with what was facing it, the audience. As soon as the lights went down and the screen brightened, I was that kid that turned around and I looked at the audience. That was pretty weird, but I did that. And I was awestruck. I'd never been in a place that could conjure a communal reaction and a communal response. This is where I found my passion. And I wanted to hold on to that so much longer. It was the 90s, the decade of blockbuster hits. Canarsie would always have movie theaters. This was my neighborhood, Canarsie, Brooklyn. And that theater became my treehouse. And to better understand the neighborhood in which I grew up in, in which I love so much, I'm going to read you an excerpt from um, a poem created by Gary Schulman. He's a Canarsie resident, and it's titled Canarsie Dreaming. Seaview Park on a warm summer's day, a, a stroll down the L, then with my buddies I'd play. Canarsie Pier, we'd explore with childish delight every fish we'd see, a miraculous sight. Late into summer, block parties would last, celebrating our neighbors. Lord, what a blast. When hunger attacked us, to delis we'd run, or maybe a pizza with soda. What fun. That Saturday morning, a movie we'd see, Canarsie Theater on the L, was my cup of tea. Then more modern, ritzy Seaview Theater was born, making a decision between the two I was torn. The schools were supreme, with teachers the best. Then once it was three, out the door to invest in our future by sharing the love of each other, connecting with those whose lives we all shared, makes tomorrow worthwhile while knowing Canarsie folks cared. In the early 2000s, white flight had taken off and Canarsie became a cinema desert. So in that movie theater, I had found my passion. But in that moment, I also found something worth speaking loudly about, something speaking up about. It was this right here. I needed to amplify this right here to keep this connection going in the community. Because once the last 
movie theater shut down in Canarsie, we had less communal spaces. I mean, where we hung out with was at schools, churches, basketball courts, and quite honestly, corner stores. Why are we left out? What happened to Canarsie? This is what happened. Canarsie was falling apart at the seams. Suddenly, this neighborhood that I once knew so well had so much going on that had nothing to do with recreations for youth or for anybody in the community. Deadly shootings, deadly shootings, more deadly shootings. So I decided to launch Polypho Cinema. And Polypho Cinema uses cinema as a conduit to create positive recreations for high-risk youth and an underserved community. And I chose to launch it in Canarsie at NYCHA Houses. So that is New York City Housing Developments, also known as Projects. Throughout Canarsie, I chose Bayview Houses and Brookline Houses. And Canarsie actually is known as one of the most dangerous communities in Brooklyn today. Lots of crime. So I really knew what I was doing with this specific space. And in 2020, a, like police officials stated that, and I'm going to close my eyes on this one so I can remember the numbers, four fatal shootings, 28 non-fatal shootings, and 102 confirmed shots fired. So I chose Brookline Houses, the picture that you just saw before. That is one of the project houses in Canarsie. And when you look at these images, you're going to see that Canarsie looks pretty bleak. Lots of storefronts for rent. The police are surveillancing everywhere. They're practically right across the street from, you know, basketball courts where youth are playing in and out all the time. But in the center of Brookline Houses, there's a mural there that says, protect the peace, stop the gun violence, because the residents there are just so exhausted with what they are up against. But all these dramatic events is what created a foundation for me to plant more seeds, a treehouse, but for other kids this time. So this Brookline daycare was the daycare that I actually went to in the early 90s, and now was my location for an outdoor movie screening. So I launched my first outdoor movie screening last summer in 2022. And this was the summer that was called the bloodiest summer in Brookline. Because the day that I had my first movie screening, just a week prior, there were back-to-back shootings just a block away. Now, when you look at this, this image here, you're thinking, okay, this is pretty simple, right? It's a movie screening. You put up a screen, you press you turn on the projector, you pop the popcorn, you put out concessions on the table, you invite your audience, you greet your audience, thank you so much for being here. They choose the film and you show it. But for those two hours that I'm with them, those two hours of their day, it'll leave an indelible impression on their lives. Because I've seen this. The community does pull up. They show up. For the kids here and the, the organizations that showed up, they needed a reason to, to be there for the youth. And I just gave them one by putting up this screen. Suddenly, I had um, local organizations donating concessions and PPE supplies for free. And also, the police were there having a great time with the youth. And after these screenings, uh, or during and after, I got, had an opportunity to hear directly from the youth. And this is what they had to say. 
my kids are looking at the movie from across the street through the window. I can't believe you chose this community. This is so beautiful. We, um, we're not the best, but we do have people protecting us. So thank you for doing this. My neighborhood? Do you know where you are? You know this is a bad neighborhood, right? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know, it's okay. Wow. I feel like I'm in Central Park. This is, this is great. I, thank you. Seniors. Can I stay behind to volunteer with you and clean up after? This is amazing. This right here is one of my favorite pictures. Because at the end of this screening, you just have kids that are free to play from one moment. They don't have to think about gun shootings or being called low income or being reminded that they're in a marginalized community. They just get to be them with the movie, the simplicity of a film. During the screenings, because I really want you to understand um, the experiences that I'm having through the labor of love. I want to really paint this picture for you. So when I'm playing this movie, I get to hear the like their gasps, right? I get to see their eyes widen as they look at familiar scenes. Don't go in there! <laughs> now you're dead. I told you not to go in there. That is literally, we saw Get Out. I'm going to be honest with you, my first movie screening, I showed Get Out, and a bunch of seven-year-olds showed up, and I was like, fear, where's your parents? They, 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 they knew all the words. It was nuts. But this is, this is literally what this experience was like. This, I, between the films and the audience, I had created this special tonic that I literally want to sell to all of you. I had figured something out that just seemed so simple, a movie and popcorn. And where, where else can you see this? Where these two groups are laughing together, police and brown and black youth in marginalized communities, where else is there an opportunity for the police, who sometimes are not from the community, have an opportunity to commune with the residents? Where else can you see it where residents will see youth positively interacting with police? This. This is what happened that night. And the, this is my audience. This is who they are. Research shows that cinema deserts are predominant in neighborhoods that are low-income, black and brown, marginalized, urban communities. And yet, what we've created here is magical. There's a magic in this. But there's less of these cinemas in communities that need it most. I want to ask you a question again. Anna asked it a second ago. Raise your hand if you're a filmmaker again for me, please. Just raise your hand up high. Thank you. Next question. How important is it to you as filmmakers to have your movie screened in a, commun in a, like, in a communal setting, like a movie theater? How important? Raise your hand if it's important for you. Raise your hands up high. OK. I um, want to say to you, then why wait for Hollywood to quench the thirst of cinema deserts when you can do it? Okay? Um, I am not a filmmaker, so I went out and I spoke to a handful of filmmakers. I, I spoke to 
a few of them from all different backgrounds, different ages, and different stages in their career. I started with this organization called Real Works, where they work with New York City residents from underserved communities, giving them the opportunity to tell their stories as filmmakers. And then that's a springboard that they use to launch them into the media industry. I spoke to seven of them, and I asked them the same question I just asked you, but I asked a few more. Why are filmmakers important? And this is what they had to say, accessibility. I want to tell stories outside of the white male gaze. Number three was, I want to tell stories that, don't, that help people to not feel like they're alone. Okay. And then I asked, great, how important is it for you to have a, a movie screening in a communal space? Absolutely, 100%. A unanimous, a unanimous, they unanimously said it was very important. And then I asked, how many of you have movie theaters in your neighborhood? One out of seven said, I have a movie theater in my neighborhood. Oh, 20 minutes away walking distance. And then I spoke to another filmmaker, Connor Champley, a New York City-based screenwriter, producer, filmmaker. And he was awarded Best Drama for his screenplay. Um, it was a short called Sick Boy. I asked him the same questions. And he said, it was important to be a filmmaker because you're going to share different POVs, different perspectives. It's important to be a filmmaker because you are pushing the world forward. And I said, do you need to have your film seen in the theater? Absolutely. Why? Because this is the one place where you have people surrender to the filmmaker's intention. And it's okay to feel the way you feel when you're in this audience because there's other people around you feeling that too. And then I asked, Connor, how many movie theaters do you have? He has three. He lives in Union Square, Manhattan. So what, I, what I'm going to say right now is that we are living, we have to reinvent the movie-going experience. We have to. We have to bring the power of film and the beauty of film together on the big screen, and we have to do it in a way where we are showing those that aren't often positively on the screen, right? There's not a lot of representation for the youth that are here, positive rep representation in the mainstream media. We have to do it for them. We have to come together as filmmakers and exhibitors to do this so that they can have an opportunity to see beyond what they're dealing with. What hurts me most about a lot of the things that I heard from them is the fact that because of their circumstance, they believe that they were not worthy of a movie screening, just popcorn and a movie screening. They believe that they didn't deserve that. How far have we fallen to make them think that? So this is why we have to make this change. Having a good time, it's just so important for humanity. And a movie is a good time. I will leave you with this. And I will ask you, how will you palefo in your spaces with your films? Thank you. Hello. Oh, great. This is working. Thank you. Thank you, Anna, once again for making this all happen and inviting us. Thank you to my amazing panelists. I am very inspired and more knowledgeable now than I was when I entered. And thank you all again for being here. Speaking of community and communal experiences, I can no longer take such things for granted. I know we all had a very long stretch of being very isolated. So it's 
wonderful to see your beautiful faces. So I'm Annie Berman, and I'm here to help restore faith in fair use, to empower you to exercise your fair use rights using my film, The Faithful, as a case study. Making a film is a leap of faith. And when your faith is shaken to the core, when you no longer believe you have the right, what then? Has this happened to anyone here? Perhaps an advisor or a distributor or a rights holder tells you you don't have the rights to an image, a clip, a snippet of music, something that perhaps was captured unintentionally in the background of your scene. Or maybe you're using other people's footage for historical context, as commentary or critique, something you believed was squarely within your rights. Maybe you even received a scary cease and desist letter, and seeing the names of all of these lawyers on big, fancy law firm letterhead caused you to panic, stop, abandon your film, just as they'd intended. It happened to me. I had a film I was afraid to release, and I carried this film and this fear with me for nearly two decades. But thanks to the dedication of fair use advocates, I was ultimately able to utilize fair use, obtain errors and omissions insurance coverage, and secure distribution. I'm here to tell you, you have far more rights than some rights holders will lead you to believe. I want to make sure you know what those rights are because I want you to make your films. I want them to find their audiences. Our laws were created to encourage new works, to limit monopolies, and to ensure that creativity flourishes. We need your creative works and your voices. So here's what took me 20 years to learn in roughly 12 minutes. <clears throat> The Faithful is a film that would have never seen the light of day if it weren't for fair use. Okay, let's roll a trailer. It's a story about our visual culture, about three of the most photographed people of our time, Elvis, Pope John Paul II, and Princess Diana. A story about how they forever permeated our culture and what they mean to those who cherish them most. My camera was my way of understanding my world, a world saturated by media images, by commercial culture, when I started this film back in 1999, I don't even think I knew what fair use was. But I knew I had a right, I ought to have a right, to tell a story like this one. So what exactly is fair use? I've been saying it a lot. So um, fair use is our constitutional right to excerpt or quote copyrighted material under certain circumstances for purposes such as, but not limited to, criticism, commentary, news reporting, and research without the need for permission or payment to the copyright holder. And sometimes, it's our only option. You see, even if I had the zillions of dollars that would be needed to license every single instance of a reference to one of these figures in our culture, Elvis's estate, the folks behind Graceland, made it clear that they would not license me anything um, ever, period. Not for any money, I said. Not that I had it, but I was just out of curiosity. <laughs> uh, no, we plan to one day make our own documentary about Elvis, which begs the question, can't there be more than one documentary about Elvis? 
and shouldn't there be? Should rights holders be allowed to determine what stories are told and who gets to tell them? So at this point, let's see, I had already shot hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of still photographs. A lot of of people had contributed their time. I couldn't give up, but I didn't know how to proceed, how to move forward. Uh, Fortunately, I was appointed a volunteer lawyer for the arts. Unfortunately, she was of little help. Her advice, best to avoid using Elvis's image altogether. Uh, Even if Elvis's image is on a t-shirt of a fan I'm interviewing, you know, they're wearing it, and she said, yeah, no, really best to avoid it. Uh, You know, Elvis's estate is so litigious, it's, it's just better to avoid it. This was clearly not possible <laughs> for a film about Elvis's image. Uh, these images have become part of us, inscribed in our flesh. They've become part of our memories, our history, our stories. How can you own this? And shouldn't there be room for everyone's Elvis? What took me years to understand was that her advice was just that, advice. She wasn't telling me that I was doing, what I was doing was illegal or unethical. She was simply telling me that I would increase increase my risk of conflict, of being sued. The truth is, Anyone can sue you, or even threaten to sue you. That doesn't mean you're wrong. Anyone can send you a cease and desist letter. That doesn't mean you're wrong. Letters are cheap. Litigation is not. The fear is real, believe me. But that doesn't mean you're wrong. I recently learned that even when they know you are within your rights, those sending the letters are known to lie, to misrepresent themselves, because there's no legal consequence for them lying on these letters. So we should all know that. So at this point, here I was, afraid to finish this film, afraid to spend the rest of my life in court or behind bars, I don't know, ashamed that I'd wasted so many people's time and just feeling helpless and alone. At the kind of end of my rope, the only thing... uh, I could think of to do was to track down my hero, Larry Lessig, who's the founder of the Creative Commons. Um, If you aren't aware of it, um, please Google it, an alternative to copyright. Um, So Larry Lessig is also a lawyer and the only lawyer to say this to me, the words that kept me going. So this was the early 2000s, and fortunately, so much has changed thanks to the great advocacy work of many people. And so it is far less risky than it was when I sat down with Larry Lessig and he, he told me the, that I could, I could do it. I was within my rights if the law was, was interpreted correctly. Um, so, but here I, so I would love to be your Lessig, to believe in you, to tell you that if by your own ethical compass you believe you are right, that you're not exploiting someone else's content Um, but rather you need this material in order to comment on or critique or illustrate an argument to place in a historical context 
and that by doing so, you are transforming the original purpose of the material. If you believe so, chances are high that the law is actually on your side. You do have rights. You have support. Here's what to do, things I wish every film school was teaching. Create an LLC for your film. So if you already have an LLC for your production company, open up a new one just for your film to add another layer of protection. Read this and become an expert in it. It's short, it's concise, you can sleep with it under your pillow, let it be your Bible, but it will tell you everything you need to know. <clears throat> it is the statement of best practices in fair use. It is something that really changed the game that enabled us to assert these rights we had all along, made it very clear for all parties involved. It's what enabled insurance carriers to accept fair use under errors and emissions insurance policies. Uh, you want to keep a detailed log of all third-party materials you're using in your film. Do this as early as you can. As soon as you start accumulating, gathering the material, make sure you record where it's from, Try to figure out who owns it. If you do try to contact the copyright owner for permission and they say no, that it does not count against you um, in, in a case should it ever go that far. Um, so as more detailed as you can be in your log, the easier it'll be for your lawyers and the more money you'll save um, in their time. So I will, I will say I had 180 um, third-party material usages um, that are in this document, all of which were either um, cleared through fair use or licensed. So you'll use this log to give to your attorney um, to generate a, who will um, create a fair use opinion letter. You want to find an attorney who is well-versed in fair use. They aren't all. So Make sure you find uh, filmmakers who have also used fair use and talk to them about which attorneys they've used. You'll need this letter to secure errors in emissions insurance, also referred to as E&O. Most distributors require this. It helps protect you from lawsuits claiming you made a mistake in your professional services. This insurance can help cover court costs or settlements. It is this E&O insurance policy which ultimately enabled me to release The Faithful in theaters. There'll be an upcoming broadcast and consumer release um, to sign with distributors and ultimately to sleep at night. And finally, number five, build a team of trusted advisors, folks who've successfully navigated this in the past. Diane Carson is one of mine, and I'm thrilled that she's here with us today. By chance or fate and luck, good luck, and I, Diane, if you wouldn't mind just joining me. Uh, Diane Carson made one of the best resources in fair use for filmmakers, Other People's Footage, a documentary, thank you, a documentary that um, interviews lawyers, activists, filmmakers who show us how they employed fair use in their films and how we can too. Films such as Room 237, Citizen Four, 20 Feet from Stardom, 
so we've been traveling together with our two films to film schools and festivals because there's still so many myths to dispel and believe knowledge is power. We're really fortunate to have Diane here today, and I was hoping that she could take it from here to tell us how do we determine whether the material we are using constitutes fair use? Now, can yes. I'll just hold this. I'm only here for two minutes to say I am absolutely passionate about fair use and your knowing your rights, which are much more robust than you probably think they are, so that you can put your money into achieving your film vision instead of unnecessarily paying for licensing. The important critical word is transformative for whatever asset you are taking. And there are three main questions. Is the asset you're using illustrating a point that you're already making in your film? Do you, do you use no more than is absolutely necessary? And would that point be obvious and clear to an average viewer? If you can say yes to all three of those questions, you are exercising fair use. And these principles apply to both nonfiction and scripted films. So my message is short and clear. Know your fair use rights. Exercise them. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Diane. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you are here. Um, and the big here, too. Uh, here for all of us, really. Um, so there are free legal clinics for those of us like me who couldn't afford lawyers. At this link, you'll find a list of clinics and other valuable resources, including the Statement of Best Practices. Um, and there might be people here who know more than I do. Please help contribute to that resource list. Um, again, I'll just reiterate what Diane said, that you have rights and you're not alone. There's a community who wants to support you. Thank you. Oh, yes, and there are cards up here that also have links to the resources about both of our films. Thank you. All right. Oh, there we are. Um, we have about 15 to 20 minutes for questions. If anybody wants to uh, go to a mic so that we can hear you, there are mics there and there. Um, any questions for anyone on the panel? Do you all have questions of each other? <laughs> Do you want to turn your mic up? Misha, did you say you first got $4,000 and you made those two things? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was wondering if I misheard you because um, so you made the VR piece and the short film. For four thousand dollars. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're doing yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So we uh, we got forty five hundred, and at the time I was just exploring how to make VR immersive three sixty uh, films, and we were hungry to tell different stories. And so when I uh, had come on board with Wes on his story. Um, we basically used, it was funded through goodwill and friendships and collaborations from our community. And we made it the five minute VR piece. I think it was around $1,200. We shot both the VR piece and the short doc, 
um, in two and a half days for $4,500. Yeah. So it's just encouraging. I want to be encouraging to everyone here. You don't need a big budget to make films. You need a good story and you need collaborators who believe in you, who you also believe in and can offer their talents and share their talents. Thank you. It looks like there's a question over there. Yeah, I had a question here. And because um, I took a seminar, a senior seminar on, on film and it was concerning Spike Lee. And I, I feel that Spike Lee is an inspiration for for uh, new upcoming uh, filmmakers because of the concepts and the techniques, plus the documentary and the time capsule. So I wanted to know, do you all agree that, that that's another example that people can look at or, or try to to take um, – you know what are the concepts that he employed or that that he used to try to you know for them to help them inspire them and for to creating their own films do you agree on that or do you have any insight on more yeah i'll just say something and people can jump in if they want um yeah i think that when people see spike lee now they see all of the polish and the money behind him i think they really need to look at his early films that were you know uh Definitely sort of uh, collaborators supporting and, and everyone doing things low budget and, and just, um, you know, the performances are really sort of what carried those films. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that uh, he is definitely obviously an inspiration as an indie filmmaker at his start. One, and he did return to, to crowdfunding and that sort of stuff down the line as well. I mean, I think that's part of the thing about Filmmaking is it's a process of reinvention. Uh, we constantly have to reinvent the stories that we're telling. We constantly have to reinvent the methods in which we're getting our stories told. Um, you know, don't don't let barriers. I think what we're all saying sort of is don't let barriers discourage you. Um, I think it's important if you have a story that you have to tell, then then you have, just have to find a way to tell it. Can you come over to the mic just so we can I'm hear? A wild boy. Okay. <laughs> Uh, my budget for the film was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, the vast majority. Oh gosh, uh, uh, crew, crew, and and cast uh, locations can be can be a tough thing too. Crafty, anybody? Crafty and food, please feed your crew well. That's extremely important uh, because they'll revolt. Uh, and it won't be good. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think I think the majority just comes through all those sorts of things. Um, you know, rental equipment, equipment, especially if you're looking for to do uh, trick shots, that sort of stuff. All that, all those things sort of add up. I mean, you just won't believe it. I think it was the second day when I was on set, and I, I turned around and I looked at two giant uh, grip trucks, and I was like, "What have I done? Why? Why did I do this to all these poor people?" Uh, it just it. You know, you, you you will find. I think one thing I really learned through the process of making my film was, uh, I, I definitely became a lot more sensitive and caring for the folks that have to do like two hundred fifty million dollar movies because I was like, it really does add up, y'all. It adds up really quick, and if you're not careful, it can really overinflate. Um, so just you know, finding any ways to cut corners, uh, finding friends and, and and DPs who have equipment, that stuff can really like save a lot of money. Um, but, but the most important thing I think is just par- paying people as equitably as we can, you know, because everybody's putting all that hard work in. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah. Does anybody want to add anything else? I absolutely. Food crafty is so important, especially so important. 
for low budget independent films because mm -hmm. the food symbolizes respect and gratitude. Um, so on our film, we were around the same budget for our feature. The you know I said the the VR was um, twelve hundred. The short doc was whatever the rest of you know a couple thousand, and our feature narrative was around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And um, our location budget um, was zero. And I get teary just thinking about it because I would go on set and you knew people were not there. I mean, we tried with the catering. They weren't there for the food. And they definitely weren't there for the paychecks. Everybody was there because they needed and they saw that this story needed to be told. And we leaned into the theater community in Seattle a great deal. I think that depending on what story you're trying to tell, theater is an untapped resource because there's these artists and actors and incredibly talented people who um, like the idea of, of capturing stuff in a frame. Um, so yeah, budget, budget does not have to limit. And in fact, the, I was shocked that um, in, in my career, the better the script, oftentimes, unfortunately, the smaller the budget, yeah. which is bullshit. Yeah. I, I want to make a comment from a mentor that has taught me, and it has a lot to do with theater. It's so funny that you said that. My, my mentor is Josefina Lopez, and she did uh, Real Women Have Curves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she had no money, and so what she did is she made it into a play, mm. and she presented it in a theater community. Um, and they did it for 10 years. They, they produced it, played it, played it, played it. And some, a producer came and was in the audience and fell in love with it and made her an offer and it got made into a movie. So the theater is another way, you know, to co include the community, but also to get people to see it and get maybe to somebody to fund you cheaper than filming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you for that. Question over here. Yeah. So in regards to uh, cinema deserts, it was super inspiring. And I was wondering, are, uh, do you have any online resources or best practices guidelines for doing something like this? And then my second question related to that was there, when you first did it, were there any surprises that you weren't expecting to come up, you know, in terms of the logistics? Yeah, so the way that I was able to launch was because I applied perfect timing. So the pandemic hit and then after, like everybody's trying to figure out, well, what do we do? How do we get people back into cultural institutions because everybody was so used to being at home. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing that I realized is um, a lot of local politicians or people with a lot of money, they want artists to do the work. They just want to write the check. So I was in a situation where um, the mayor's office in New York City had created this Safe in the City grant. And I didn't have to be a for-profit or a non-profit or an LLC, nothing. I'm just an individual that was super passionate. I applied and I got $8,000 and I used that money to have the outdoor cinema screenings, and that's still how I'm funding this. I'm mm. applying for grants on a constant basis so that I can continue. Well, I was renting the equipment. Now for this summer, I want to purchase my own equipment because I don't only want to just stay in Canarsie. I want to be able to go to other housing developments in the five boroughs, but that's how I support this. But what's interesting is I didn't realize how much buy-in I was going to get from um, community organizations. So I've learned to cut costs by getting concessions donated, in-kind donations from community organizations that were just showing up. And they were like, again, how can I help? I've been trying to tap into the, into the youth and support seniors. How can I help? So what I realized is 
Local politicians need a picture to take. Whenever they get voted, they're nominated for something, they want to show up. They may not show up to give you anything, but what they'll do is they'll take a picture with you, and then they'll connect you with media, or they'll connect you with your next nonprofit organization, who will then donate things to you, right? So then I connected, I like reached out to the local politicians so they could support me. Um, nonprofit organizations, I asked them, can you show up and table? You can bring whatever you want. And they would show up as well. That helps to bring down my costs. And then, of course, trying to find a grant so that I'm not constantly renting equipment, because that is really what ate at my money. And also, like, the public performance license. Like, every time I showed a movie, whether old or new, it was like $200 to $400 eating away at my at my budget, which is why I really want to work with filmmakers to see how I can cut the cost. Um, but the, there, was a, there was another thing, what I didn't expect. I expected to have hundreds of people show up when I had this event. <laughs> Everybody's going to show up to my screen. It's going to be great. <laughs> the first time, it was 30 people. And a resident told me, why are you so pouty? And I'm like, like there's like barely anybody here. And she's like, no, there are 30 people in this space right now that could be anywhere else. This is why I thank you all for being here. Because mm-hmm. I understand time is valuable. And she was like, this is going to grow. And you know what happened next time? the same people showed up, which means I was doing something right. Mm-hmm. And then they told their friends. And I love this story. One day I was on my scooter, not electric, mind you, and I had flyers <laughs> in my hand and tape, and I'm going to these project buildings and I'm posting up the flyers, and the same kids that came to my first screen, it was like, yo, miss, can I help you? And I was like, yes. And they started flyering for me in the buildings, and like, this is my crew. Like, yeah. So, so that's, oh, yeah. that's how I'm doing this right now. So good. Oh, yeah. a question over there. Hi, uh, this is a question about WeFunder. Yep. I was wondering, um, who were the people that ended up investing in your film? Were they people you knew, people you didn't? Yeah, it was it was a pretty equal amount um, because WeFunder was still new with film and television, um, and and a previous project that my production company had done had done it through WeFunder as well. So I think we sort of piggybacked a little bit off of that and got some of the investors from that. Um, but I would say it was, it was pretty like even split. Because there was like that hesitation for a lot of my friends and family who were just like, oh gosh, I don't really want to disclose all this private. You know, it's easy enough to like go and like enter in your credit card information. And then if your credit card gets compromised, you just, you know, wipe it clean, get a new one. But when it comes to social security and all that stuff, it became a little bit more complicated. But I also think uh, that work that I did to get those additional investors, a lot of it came from uh, Zoom calls, phone calls. Uh, a lot of like just just discussing with the with the investors what we'd be making, uh, and and really going more in depth probably into the filmmaking process of how I was going to get it done than you normally would with something like a, a seed and spark and that sort of thing. And I also just wanted to add, y'all like, I'm just wishing all of you the greatest luck throughout all this process because it's so goddamn hard, yeah. and you all are fucking rock stars for even just trying. Yes. So I just wanted to say that. Yes. Thank you. And I think we have time for just about one more question. But we'll hang out for a little bit if people want to come and talk to us. So on that note, what do you think gave you guys that boost? Like boost of like, oh, I'm going to do this. I can do this. Because that's the biggest thing for me is like, oh, my God, there's so much fear. Like there's so many things like with the fair use that could go wrong. And so what gave you the boost to be like, okay, I'm like taking this like now? I, I could speak for myself. Absolute desperation. <laughs> I just had to make a movie. I couldn't stand it anymore. I was losing my mind. Uh, I angrily would like, go and buy equipment and go film like the LA River because I was just so mad that I couldn't film a movie. I think I just, 
I, it, there was always that hesitation. There's always that fear, like, are you going to make enough money? Are you going to be able to get the financing? Are you going to be able to get all the right investors? Um, you, sometimes you just have to take that plunge, and you have to be, I think, frustrated enough and fed up enough where you just you have to do it. It's ride or die, that sort of thing. But that I can only yeah. speak from my own experiences. Absolutely, I I agree 100%. It's you you have to know that the story needs to be told. The world mm-hmm. needs mm-hmm. to hear this story. Mm-hmm. And you know, a, a gay kid growing up in Russia who finds a way, whose mother like sacrifices so much to become a mail order bride. She was a doctor in order to get him to a place where he could be gay and for freedom and equity. And, you know, it's like I read that and I'd read so many shitty scripts and I read the script and not only was the story incredible, but there was so much humor, whatever. If you're sitting on a story like that, you owe it to us, the audience to like tell your story because we want to see it and hear it. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I say that um, it wasn't a choice that my film chose me. And I think that happens to us. It's like we're this conduit for better or worse. And it just has to make its way through us. And um, sometimes it's better not to know all these things when you're starting because (laughs) (laughs) maybe we, (laughs) sorry, Uh, (laughs) knowledge is power, but knowledge can also be uh, overwhelming. (laughs) I just want to add a different perspective because I don't often hear people say, Um, I I didn't need to make a film. It wasn't this driving force. I studied filmmaking just because I didn't know people could be an exhibitor. I didn't know that I could, you know, curate and that could be a a job essentially. And so I did that for a long time and I still do. And that's my main identity. But then I had the resources and knew the people and could make films. And so my first film was on a dance night that's been going in Cambridge for like you know, almost 30 years. And I did it because I love that community and I wanted to show them on, like I wanted to to do it for them really. It wasn't for like a a broader audience. It was just so that they could see themselves on screen. And then my second one was a, I'm an activist and I wanted to get involved with this group Never Again, protesting attention of migrants um, across the country and was going to go and get get arrested along with them. And, and And then I realized I could be actually much more useful to the movement by making a film about it. And so for me, it wasn't like, I have to create, I have to be, you know, I, I didn't start doing it until I was in my 40s. And I did it because, you know, I I had the access and I could do it. And so, so yeah, so if, if you're that kind of filmmaker, that's okay too. It doesn't have to be that you, you know, have wanted to be a filmmaker since you were two and have this burning desire that you can um, decide that you are the best person, you are close to the story, and you can do it. Um, and so, yeah, those filmmakers are... Yeah. Are valid too. Thank you. Thanks. So, so that's the QR code. We'll leave it up for a little bit longer. If you want to get to the resource page, it should have our contact information and citations and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll hang out for a little bit longer if you want to come talk to us. Postcards for the faithful and um, other people's footage up there. Yeah, everyone see the faithful. Everybody see Potato Dreams of America. Yes. They're both amazing movies. Please. Uh, yeah, see you then. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs>